The Tiger Tamer Who Went to Sea from History Extra charts the life of a remarkable Victorian, Britain's original long-distance wheelbarrow pedestrian. New episodes are out every Thursday or listen to the whole series immediately ad-free by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts or listening on historyextra.com. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. In today's episode, you'll be hearing from the archaeologist and television presenter Neil Oliver on his new book, The Story of the World in a Hundred Moments. It's a whistle-stop tour through some of history's key events, from the world's first poet to the death of one of Britain's last First World War veterans. BBC History Revealed staff writer Emma Slatterley-Williams spoke to Neil to find out more. Your new book, The Story of the World in 100 Moments, as the name suggests, takes us through human history through key events. What made you take on this mammoth task of exploring the history in just 100 moments? That is the question. It was, it was, I knew it was going to be big, a big job, but once I started on it, I really, I almost panicked and threw up my hands and abandoned the whole thing because it, it, it just became, well, for me, it was, it was quite monumental really in its scale. It came from, the idea was, I I, I had always, or or for the longest time, I had thought it would be great fun to be able to stand up on a stage, as it were, and tell the story of the world in an hour, I thought. I thought it'd be great to be able to summarise human history down to something manageable that that for an hour or so, the the people listening might, however briefly, feel that they could hold the whole story in their heads. Even if, it, even if it would eventually get away from them again. And it had been a, a, a dream or, a, or, a, or, a, or a, of a pipe dream for the longest period of time. But then finally, I had written previously the story of the British Isles in a hundred places. And I thought this would be the ideal time to, to try and bring my, my big dream to life uh, and to make it real. Uh, because apart from anything else, it felt a little bit like a grander sequel to the to the book that was based around Britain, I thought right, we might as well. This is this would be the time now to do to do the world. So I decided that I would make it uh, five thousand years. Uh, I decided to start it with the advent of writing because the written word is clearly a, a significant moment in in terms of history. You know, because now that once we we were able to write things down and, and keep documents and letters and and books and all the rest of it. So I started it with with the advent of. Uh, writing, which is, let's say, about 5,000 years ago. And then I set about the, as it turned out, the mammoth task of deciding which hundred moments to tell. 
And what I've ended up with, I hope, is a selection that where some of them will be instantly familiar to people. They will have heard of the moment or, or they will have heard of the principal character involved. Others, hopefully, less so. Because it, as with all of my books are quite personal, you, you might even say idiosyncratic. Uh, and I, I also wanted this to be my story of the world. It's not an academic textbook at all. Uh, that's not, I'm not in the business of, of writing heavy academic tomes. It's supposed to be something that would hopefully draw people in, uh, interested readers who maybe when they go into the history section in a bookshop, look at the whole dizzying array of titles and don't know where to start. And perhaps my book might give people a a doorway, a springboard into the all-encompassing topic of world history. Uh, And maybe when they read my moments, it might make them think, no, you need this moment as well or my hundred moments would be these. Uh, so I think that's that's where the idea came from. I wanted to inspire people to think, uh, to come up with what they think is the story of the world. Uh, and, and ideally, it would, be a, it would start conversation and debate. So how did you pick the moments? <laughs> well, a, a, a lot of them I knew. I, when I sat down, I, I, the first thing I did was sit down and make a list. Uh, and I was able to come up with, I would... I'm estimating here, but I would say about 60, 60 to 70 off the top of my head. I thought it has to, it has to involve these, uh, I, even, even where it was things that I, I, I only had the, 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 even where I thought I only had the barest idea, uh, I thought it, it must include these. But the, the process of doing that then led me on little, little journeys of discovery of my own. And, and I was, uh, moments that I had thought about fell into the background and, and I decided they didn't help tell the wider story and other stories, as it were, elbowed their way to the front that I hadn't even realised were there and they became part of the story as well. I, I wanted it to be a mix. I thought, I don't want it to be, you know, to, to be discouraging and that, you know, someone wouldn't have heard of any of these moments. I wanted it to be a mix of the familiar and the unfamiliar and, and hopefully that's that's where we are. My aspirations are just that somebody might pick up the book and by reading a few lines of it or a few pages of it might be might be a springboard, you know, to have them go off and, and have their own adventure in history. Were you, were you mindful to try and ensure that you covered as many different periods and, and countries as possible? Oh, absolutely. It being a story of the world, I was careful. So we, we start in the old world of the, of the, well, the Middle East, the Near East, Mesopotamia, uh, you know the, the ancient civilizations are Babylon, Egypt, uh, and then you know gradually spreads out into the into the classical world. I suppose the classical world around the Mediterranean, uh, and, and in the fullness of time, it takes in. And but quite late in the day, really, you know, we get to Western Europe and and Britain. But it, but the book is also about the Americas, North and South, Australasia, Africa, uh, Asia, uh, you know, the, the Far East, uh, Russia, China. Hopefully, hopefully it's all there. Hopefully, it does have the scope. And as I say, it, it runs chronologically uh, from you know from five thousand years ago and and come, comes up to the you know well getting very close to the present day. So you you begin with the story of the Sumerian poet whose name I'm probably going to pronounce wrong, Enheduanna. I think that's close enough. Oh, that's great. Uh, so hers is a story that myself and our listeners perhaps are not too familiar with. Could you tell us a bit about her and why her significance puts her at the start of your book? Well, she's she's uh, she's regarded as the first named poet uh, 
excavations in her part of the world, uh, you know, at, at Ur. Uh, she was a, a high priestess of a temple, which was physically quite close to the palace. So church and state were, were, were quite close together. In, in Heduana was a, a priestess there dedicated to worship of the goddess the, and the, the gods and the goddesses that were, that, were, that were the pantheon of those people. And she wrote poetry and she, she wrote poetry in praise of and in awe of the gods and, and the goddesses. And she's given the time, given the distance in time, it, it's hard to know who she was. Uh, she may have been the daughter of Sargon the Great, who was a king. Uh, she, she was certainly, to be placed in that position, she must have had some kind of significance. Maybe she was high-born. Uh, there's some debate even about whether she actually composed the, the hymns of praise to which she put her name. Uh, but her, she's, she's the first person, uh, she's the first poet that, that uh, puts herself into the narrative. You know, she writes in the first person within the hymns about what she is going to do, how much, how much the goddess means to her uh, and, the, and how much she wants the goddess to change and own her. So she's, she actually puts herself into the stories for the first time. And she signs them off. You know, they're 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 uh, they're they're signed by Enheduanna. The only the only copies that we have are much much later copies. She had her own scribe. She had so she would have been the images of her dictating, and someone else writing it down in cuneiform. Uh, and the the only copies that we have are, are much later than than Enheduanna's time. So what we have are are survivals long after her day and age. Her, her work was still being remembered and copied and passed on and it, it survived in the form of clay tablets and they, they've been you know translated and they've been handed down to us. Uh, the, the Epic of Gilgamesh, people might have heard of the Epic of Gilgamesh uh, and, and Gilgamesh is, the, is like the first named real person from, from history. Uh, but Gilgamesh didn't write the Epic of Gilgamesh. It was written by other people. In Hedywana is the is the first person, as so far as we know, it's a it's a reasonable it's a reasonable statement to say that she's the first named poet that we have. And it it seemed to me that given that history is stories, it seemed right and proper to to start with the first named person we know that was that was composing and telling stories. Yeah, definitely. So. I want to pick up on the story of Martin Luther, actually, in the uh, Protestant Reformation, a defining moment in the 16th century. You suggest that Luther would have been one of the last people to suspect that he would be credited with the uh, Reformation and that there was never his intention. Could you explain a bit more about this? Because I think we tend to see him as an avid opponent of the Catholic Church. He was a very devout figure. You know, he was a very devout uh, Catholic uh, a very uh, he was he was a, a theologian. He was well read, you know. So he was he was an, an educated man, and he he was particularly uh, in, inspired, I suppose, uh, by the idea that the that his church that he loved so much was was falling from what he regarded as the path of righteousness, basically. And and he made it plain from the beginning that everything he was saying he was getting from the Bible, you know, that he wasn't making any of it up. It wasn't his own ideas. He was just reminding his church of their of their own foundations. At the time of the writing of the 95 Theses, there was a, a another churchman moving through his, his part of Germany who was selling uh, indulgences, which is to say that the, 
there was a fundraising effort going on to raise funds for the building of St. Peter's in Rome or a new church in Rome. Uh, and, the, and the church had been was selling indulgences. And it's basically a get-out-of-jail-free card in indulgence. Uh, it, it reduces the amount of time that a sinner would have to spend in, in purgatory before you know before getting out and getting getting off to paradise. And so it, it, indulgences, uh, it's a way of buying your freedom. And uh, Martin Luther was just horrified. He, 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 he said, you, this is not what Jesus came to do. You know, Jesus came to, to remind us, to, to tell us that uh, it's, you know, lives of faith, you know, living virtuous lives at all times, being good people or trying to be good people uh, is, is what we ought to do. And it's not enough just to go through the motions. You can't just go to church, listen to the, to the, to the, to the priest, make your confession, get absolution, and then expect to get to heaven. If you if you're a sinner, you shouldn't be trying to buy your way out of your sins. It's it's by it's by properly repenting your sins that you that you make the progress. And this is all in the Bible. It's all there. So it, it was very much it started out as this response to the to the selling of indulgences. But then he seemed to uh, he, he his his time his he hand wrote the ninety five theses, pinned them to a church door. But his time overlapped with the coming of printing. And where his words might have had a limited circulation, I mean, a copy, he, sent, he himself sent a copy of, of what he was saying to the Pope. He did that himself. But his theses were taken down and set in print and, and, and went viral, you might say, because the printing press was available. Uh, his ideas were suddenly being circulated to many more people than would ever previously have been possible. And he, he got for himself an audience. And to some extent, he, and he was a good writer. And, and he may, or it, or it seems apparent, that he, had, he, he began to enjoy the fact that he had an audience, quite understandably. And he wrote more and more, and he developed his ideas, uh, and he became more and more controversial. But, and, and, and ultimately what he did, he, he, was the, he was the midwife of the Reformation. You know, he, he, his thinking, his, uh, his reminder to the church, Inadvertently, he gave birth to the Reformation, so which split his beloved church. It, you know, gave rise to Protestantism. Uh, you know, and the and the and, and everything, everything. All the centuries of strife that have come ever after were triggered uh, by you know in the in the first place by Martin Luther. But it was never. It wasn't his original intention. He was just trying to remind his church that he loved so well uh, that it had, that it had fallen fallen from the true path. He was suggesting how to get back onto the true path. And then by the law of unintended consequences, <laughs> he gave rise to the to the Reformation. And you know, people like John Calvin were, were inspired to, to take on his message and to and there were, you know, the further, you know, further splitting and fragmentation of the of the mother church. But it wasn't his intention. He didn't he didn't set out to, to break the church in two. So I, that's a bit of a parallel with Henry VIII then, really, isn't it? Because for all intents and purposes, he remained Catholic. And until his death, but he he wanted to, you know he wanted his divorce and he didn't want the Pope in charge. But I believe that he he still thought of himself as a Catholic until his death. Y- yes, um, uh, Henry VIII believed until his you know believed until his dying day that his Church of England was the Catholic Church in all but name. Well, and we all you know the story of of, of Henry. It, it's so well rehearsed. You know he, he was desperate to get access to to someone, a woman who could give him a son. Uh, and and when it when it became apparent to him that that that, that wasn't going to be Catherine of Aragon, his, his his first wife that he'd inherited from his dead big brother, 
you know, they had, you know, they had, uh, obviously they had Mary, there were other children who didn't survive infancy. Um, and he, he felt desperately that the need to move on and, and get access to somebody else that would, that would give him a, that would give him a child. He, he believed, or, or, or it became, it became convenient to him to believe that his, uh, that by marrying his brother's wife, he had committed uh, a sin that, that 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 marriage was was in and of itself unclean, and that and he felt himself justified, or he certainly felt that he had the, the legal grounds for saying this this marriage hasn't been right. I'm being punished. I'm not being given a son because this marriage has been unclean. And it's like a, it's like a signal. This is a sign. I, sh- I need to move on and marry someone else. Hence the marriage to Anne Boleyn and everything else that happened to him and the subsequent and the subsequent wives. But again, he. He wasn't trying. He wasn't. It wasn't his original motivation to create a new church. He wasn't trying to. You know, it wasn't to break with the with the Catholic Church with the intention of starting a new religion. Uh, that was just the, the the practicalities of creating a situation in which he felt justified in, in moving on with his life and 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 marrying other people. So one event that you discuss in the book is one that we don't have a a date for, uh, the time when probably in the early 19th century, the human population reached one billion. Why was this important for you to include? I think it was, well, it's a a time, it was a, it it, it was a, it it was a moment of such significance. You know, we are now nearly 8 billion people, uh, but it had taken, it had, and we seem to be adding an extra billion people now every 15 or 20 years, but it, it took our species is 200,000 years old. <laughs> it took until about 1800 until there were a billion of us alive at the same time. So that, that's, a, that's a significant moment. And from, and from that, and then, it, then it took a considerable time to double it. But then the, the, the gap between the, you know, the, the additions of each additional billion has, has been getting smaller. You know, we are, we are reproducing and, and making more people faster and faster. But that, all of that time, when our population on the planet was numbered only in the only in the millions, it, you know, it seemed to me significant to mark the point. Even though we cannot know, the the best estimates suggest at some point around eighteen hundred, somebody was born somewhere that clicked the odometer, you know, over to one billion for the first time, uh, and it just it, it 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 does it does seem like a moment of great of great significance, uh, and it's. It also says something to me about as we get more and more, as there are more and more of us, it seems to me, perhaps ironically that, or paradoxically, that it's becoming even more important to pay attention to every one of us. As we, are, as we become, uh, you know, once, now that there are 8 billion of us, there's a tendency to think that each individual one of us becomes increasingly insignificant you know, drops of drops of rain in an ocean, and it, I think it's incumbent upon us. It's important uh, to remember it, it, the, the the importance, the the um, the sanctity almost of every single person. And I, you know, I, I illustrate the I illustrate the story by by reference to um, uh, Mervyn Peake. Uh, who was, you know, most people will know him for Gorman, Gast, and Titus Grown, but he, he, he was a he was a writer and an artist, and he was sent by a British newspaper uh, to record the liberation of Belsen concentration camp uh, at the end of the war, at the end of the Second World War, uh, and he was he was clearly from his writings and his work, he was deeply, deeply, you know, profoundly affected by by the Second World War. Uh, you know, he wrote um, in the rhyme of the flying bomb. Uh, he imagined a sailor running through the streets of London carrying a baby. 
and well, well, high explosive rains down all around him, and he wrote, a ton came down on a coloured road, and a ton came down on a jail, and a ton came down on a freckled girl. Uh, you know, so, so he's imagining, you know, the, this the sailor with a precious life in his arms, you, you because of the, the importance of, of every single life, including that baby. And, and when he was in Belson, he saw, amongst many horrors, he saw a, a young girl dying in her hospital bed, dying of of consumption. If seeing her an hour before her last week cough into all blackness, I could yet be held by chalk-white arms and by the great ash-coloured bed, and the pillows hardly creased by the tapping of her little cough-jerked head. If such can be a painter's ecstasy, her limbs like pipes, her head a china skull, then where is mercy? In, 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 amongst, in amongst all of the horror, you know, he's, he's paying attention to the individual, you know, that, that her death, that, that, that single solitary death, was important to notice and that, and that the loss of her was not just to be subsumed by the millions and the tens of millions and the hundreds of millions of people who had died and were dying as a result of the war. You know, it's just, you know, as as we grow, there's there's all sorts of predictions about us getting to 10 billion, you know, and then then some people say that after that 10 billion will be the peak and that then there will be a there will be a falling away that the numbers will start to reduce. But while the numbers are continuing to grow, uh, it just seems to me that we have to we have to pay attention to the fact that either either every one of us matters or none of us matter. So when it comes to the Second World War and and Hitler, there are so many key moments that you could have picked out. Why did you choose the moment in 1933 when he became Chancellor of Germany? He had such an impact, of course. Uh, the the power of that again, you know, the power of the individual uh, uh, on more than one occasion through the through the telling of the story. Uh, I, I try to acknowledge that individuals, single people, have mattered and have made and have made the difference. People like the Buddha, people like Muhammad, people like Jesus Christ, for obvious reasons that I don't need to explain, have changed the world and have and have and have altered the destinies of of millions and billions of people by their by their very existence. Uh, and, and on the other side of that coin is an individual like 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 Adolf Hitler, uh, who. You know his the the power of his will uh, and the and the influence that he was able to exert just as one person. You know what grew from him as an individual uh, was one of the most. Was I would say that his his coming to power was you know might have been the, the one of the most or the most significant event of the twentieth century because it, it set it set humankind on a path. You know, and we're still we're still dealing with the consequences now. The consequences of his existence, um, and when it came to, I suppose I was never going to be able to something like the Second World War. How how do you tell the story of the Second World War? It involves tens of millions of people. It involves the it involves the whole world. Uh, so how how do you how do, how does a person go about taking on board what the what the significance was of the Second World War? And and for me, it it, it just boiled down to the fact that had had the sequence of events not unfolded that gave. Adolf Hitler absolute power in Germany, the world would have been a very different place. Uh, and so that, for me, that moment of him being given, being made Chancellor, just set the destiny for the rest of time. Everything that has happened since has been affected directly or indirectly by the fact that, that Adolf Hitler became Chancellor of Germany. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. By, by focusing in on one person, I, I, I was I was trying to I was trying to humanize and and make it conceivable to think about the impact of of the Second World War 
of the dropping of the bomb uh, by, by telling the story of just one person. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. So you, in the book, you have figures like Hitler, but you also have people that are lesser known. So when you discuss the bombing of Nagasaki, you focus on the tragic story of Tommy-san, a Scottish-Japanese man who takes his own life a few days after the bombing. What was it about his story that compelled you to include it? I um, I only know about this character, uh, Tommy-san, because I, I made a documentary a number of years ago. It was a set of four, actually, The Last Explorers. And we were looking at uh, British figures who had uh, who had been uh, who had caught the tail end of the Great Age of Exploration around the end of the eighteen hundreds, early nineteen hundreds, and so we followed in the footsteps of William Spears Bruce, who was a a Scottish uh, Antarctic explorer before Shackleton, before Scott. William Spears Bruce was down in that part of the world, mapping and and having his own adventure. Uh, we also followed David Livingston into Africa. You know he was the you know the great uh, Christian uh, explorer who was who was attempting to open up Africa and and connect Africa to the to the wider world. He was trying to do that for the benefit of all Africans, but but providing the route map into Africa for the European nations, it, you know, enabled a, a darker path to to take shape for Africa. Uh, we also uh, followed John Muir, the another Scot who was uh, instrumental in, in starting the National Parks Programme in North America. You know, he's associated with Yosemite and uh, saving the the, uh, the the redwood trees, the giant redwoods. Uh, and he's, he's regarded as the father of the National Parks movement in, uh, in America. So he had, a, he had a huge impact on the, on the, on the, on the, on the development of, of his adoptive country. But we also followed um, Thomas Blake Glover, uh, another Scot, and <laughs> they're all Scots, uh, into uh, he was uh, he was working in China for a tea company and he was sent into Japan and he was he was one of the first uh, European merchants to get into Japan when Japan was going through the painful process of opening up to the world after two hundred years of having been deliberately closed off. Japan closed its borders to everyone uh, for fear that Christianity was going to come in and and undermine the power of the emperor. And so Japan became a closed country for two centuries. But the Americans went in and insisted that, that Japan open its borders. It was like gunboat diplomacy and all the rest of it. So Japan reluctantly and grudgingly started to open up to the wider world. And Thomas Blake Glover went in and changed everything. It, it's, it's the most extraordinary story. Uh, he, was a, he was a very clever individual, very entrepreneurial uh, he was very quick off the mark. He could speak Japanese. He was very. He understood the need to build relationships with the people, uh, and he he spoke Japanese. He 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 had relationships with Japanese women. He he embedded himself in the culture, uh, and in the long term, he was he he uh, he uh, armed 
he was he was a gun runner. He armed uh, a, a faction during the great fight between the those in support of the shogun and those in in favor of the those in support of the emperor. He brought industrialization. Uh, he was instrumental in bringing the it's the steam trains, the, the steam locomotives, and, and the railways into Japan. Uh, he is, he was part of establishing the company that survives to this day as Mitsubishi. Uh, he was part of establishing the brewery that still makes Kirin beer, which is the, one of the top selling beers in Japan. He had this amazing uh, impact, uh, and uh, and along the way he he married and he was involved with various Japanese women. He had a son and he had a daughter. Uh, he had a, he had his son by by a woman who was more like a common law wife. She was never really his his legal wife. He left her behind and and had an official marriage, an official wedding, uh, which gave him a daughter. But he he went back and he seems to have come to some sort of arrangement with that with that first woman, and he he got the son, and and, and took the and took the son and and raised him within his own family with his second wife, with his legal wife. And, and many people, it's it's erroneous, really, as far as we can tell. But a lot of people uh, have him as the model for um, Lieutenant Colonel Pinkerton of Madame Butterfly, because the the story of him going and, and taking the child away and and leaving this woman with nothing seems to be mirrored in, in Puccini's opera. And Tommy Tommy San is that is that son, and and Tommy San was was a was a, a figure who fell between two worlds. He was half Scottish, half Japanese. Uh, and one way or another, he never really seemed to find a place in either world. Uh, he was he was regarded as an outsider by both. He came to Scotland. He spent time with his Scottish relatives. Didn't fit in there. Went back to Japan. And, but because he was because he was half European, he always felt that he was treated with some suspicion. Uh, he lived he lived long enough to come through the Second World War. Uh, he was in Nagasaki when the when the bomb dropped, but he survived that. But he could see what was coming. He could see that. Uh, having been treated with suspicion by his by his Japanese neighbours f- for most of his life, he, he was now going to be treated with suspicion by the occupying Americans and, and Allied forces, and he, he took his life. Uh, he 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 did away with his beloved pet dogs first, and then he hanged himself in his home. Uh, and to me, he's just a he's just a, 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 a an emblem of the of of the tragedy of some of the tragedy of the second world war of some of the tragedy of what happened to japan and again it, by by focusing in on one person uh, I, I was i was trying to i was trying to humanize and and make it conceivable to think about the impact of of the second world war of the dropping of the bomb uh, by by telling the story of just one person and hence the story of tommy san yeah, it's a really, really fascinating but tragic story. Uh, and the last entry in your book is a poignant one as well. You you end the book with the death in 2009 of Harry Patch, Britain's last surviving veteran of World War One. Why did you Why did you pick his story to end the book with? By, I suppose it's just in my wiring that for me uh, the 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 First World War is just the most extraordinary story for me. The, the tragedy of it, the the impact that it had on on the civilization, you know, that, that it was the most shocking event. Uh, it it bled inevitably into the Second World War. You know, for a lot of people, the First World War and the Second World War together are a, are another thirty years war. Uh, you know, with a with a break, with a sort of a half time break in between them. But the First World War just transfixes and fascinates me. It, it was one of the first 
historical events that I ever knew about. And it was because both of my grandfathers were there. My mum's dad was was uh, uh, joined the joined the uh, joined up, volunteered underage. He lied about his age, uh, and was in the in the in the armed forces. He was badly wounded at Gallipoli. He was shot by friendly fire, in fact, and he was he was invalided out of the army before he was out of his teens. Uh, and the, and the injuries that he survived shortened his life. He, he died long before I was born, but but he did survive, you know, long enough to make my mother. <laughs> Else you and I would be wouldn't be having this conversation now. And my dad's dad uh, was at the Somme and at Passchendaele. Uh, he, he fought in, uh, at Albert on the Menin Road. He was injured multiple times but survived likewise. And I, I, for, from a very young age, I was fascinated by the idea that had their lives taken a slightly different path, I wouldn't be here. My mum's dad was so badly wounded, he was lucky to survive. Uh, and my, my, my dad's dad being wounded again and again, you know, if he'd been a bit closer to some of the shells that injured him, Again, I wouldn't have existed. And so the First World War, as well as being this world-encompassing, world-enveloping event, it was personal to me. I felt, I felt directly connected to it. I felt, I felt connected to it from... I felt connected to the First World War for as long as I can remember. And to me, it, it's, it's Homeric. It, you know, it's, like the, it's like the Iliad. It's like the Odyssey. It's like, it's like Carthage. It's like the Punic Wars or the Peloponnesian War. The First World War is just so, it's unimaginable. If it hadn't really happened, you couldn't make it up, to coin a cliche. And so I'm, I'm profoundly affected by it. And so, it, it, and I believe in my heart that we've never recovered from the First World War and indeed the Second World War, which, which bled out of it. I believe that, that, that we're still, I believe that our, our parents or our grandparents were, were damaged Profoundly by the by the First World War, they were altered, and that we are the we are effectively the descendants, the generations alive now are like the damaged children of born to damaged parents, and and I think that the idea that we're even although we're you know a hundred years and more beyond the First World War, to think that we're over it, I think is a is is a hopeless it's a hopeless mistake to make. I think we're still living in the aftermath of the First World War. And, and because it had such significance for the world, as far as I'm concerned, that it changed everything, that we're still dealing with the consequences. And, and it was for that reason that it made sense to me to, uh, you know, to tell the story of the last, Harry Patch is, is the last fighting Tommy. Other people, other people lived, outlived him that, that, were, that were involved in the First World War, but he was actually a fighting soldier. You know, he manned a machine gun, he was wounded. Uh, he, was, he was on the sharp end of the fighting. And he, so he was the last fighting Tommy. Uh, so, and when he died, he broke that living connection that had always been there, uh, that we had among us people who had actually been there and seen the things and smelt the smells and, and witnessed the horror of it. And with his passing, it's now just hearsay. Everything to do with the First World War is now just history. It's now just the stuff of books and photographs and, and movie reels. We don't have anyone who is who is really there and, and can offer up real testimony. Um, and, and because of its, as I said at the beginning, this is a personal, it's my story of, it's my hundred moments. It's the story that makes sense to me. And so, and so it made sense to, uh, to end with, with the passing relatively recently of the last living witness, the last sentinel of the First World War. 
So as you just said, it was it was your 100 moments and you, you see history as personal. Are there any notable events you think people may be surprised you didn't include? Oh my goodness. <laughs> I didn't see that one coming. Um, oh gosh. Um, I, do you know, I like to think in my... <laughs> <laughs> my vanity. I like to think that although the, it's a hundred moments, but there, there, there's more, I would say, in each of the hundred moments than just the specific moment. I, I've, I have done my level best to at least touch, however lightly, on everything I could think of, of significance chronologically and geographically. I mean, I know that's a bold claim and people will instantly steam in and say, yeah, but you didn't mention this person and you didn't tell that story. But I can honestly say hand on heart, for me, I've, I've told the story I wanted to tell. And people can pick it apart. Um, that, doesn't, that doesn't bother me or trouble me. You know, I can already hear the voices saying, how could you possibly pretend to, st- to tell the story of the world and not mention... I'm sure people will say that instantly just on having thumbed through the index or, or, or looked through the content, but I don't mind. So no, you know, in answer to your question, if I'd felt that there was something there that added to my version of the story of the world, it would be in the book. So this is probably another hard question then. Um, as you said, you've written it chronologically rather than ranking them. Could you pick your top five? I think the story of uh, Fyodor Dostoevsky seeing the dead Christ in the tomb, the, the Holbein painting, has, uh, I, I, I think, huge resonance and, and significance. Dostoevsky and, and also Friedrich Nietzsche uh, in, the, you know, in, the, in the second half of the, of the 19th century were, independently of one another, came to the same conclusion that the because we had as a civilization in the West done away with God, that there would be terrible consequences. Whether you're a person of faith or not, they were both predicting that because we had come from a civilization that was founded upon Judeo-Christian principles, that having taken the sort of sharp axe of scientific reason and having used that edge to, you know, to cut down the old growth forest of, of the thousands of years that had gone before, that there would be that there would be dread consequences, and and they were predicting they were predicting the twentieth century, the, the you know the, the holocausts and charnel houses of the first world war and of the second world war, of the rise of communism and and the Soviet Union, uh, you know life behind the iron curtain, the gulags, they 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 saw it all coming, uh, and and so uh, you know in answer to your question, I think. I think uh, the the existence of those thinkers and their uh, their intuition about the consequences that they could see that would be born out of the of the civilization or or the world that they were living in, I think is extraordinary. That that they saw that that that, that in, and independently of one another, although they they were aware of each other, but that they saw that coming is so prophetic and so telling so that and and for and for similar reasons I'm I'm, I'm very much affected by uh, uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn and his his testimony regarding the the Gulag archipelago you know he was there he saw that and bore witness to it and you know within the Gulag archipelago he includes testimony of hundreds of people 
who, who, with whom he was in contact, who were there and who witnessed it. And then by, by, by extrapolation, that, that, that connects us to the millions of people, the, the, the anonymous, unknown millions who, who, who either perished in those camps or, or survived and somehow got out and went on to live the rest of their lives. Uh, so that's, I, I would say, um, Solzhenitsyn and, and the Gulag Archipelago. I, I, you can see a theme. I, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm always affected, I suppose, by, by the individuals. And so uh, the, the birth and life of, of the Buddha, Siddhartha Gautama, who, who is the Buddha, uh, the life of Muhammad, uh, the life of Jesus Christ. I mean, I mean how can you, how can you, how can you, you know, discount or, or how can you imagine a, a world without the impact made by those individuals? I don't know if that gives us five, but I think that gives maybe a sense of the way I'm, the way I'm wired up. <laughs> How much uh, has your work as an archaeologist influenced what you put into this book? Oh gosh, well, uh, I'm always at pains to stress that I'm not a historian. I'm, I'm not. I, I don't have any. I don't have any um, illusions. I'm not an academic historian. I studied archaeology at, at university, but archaeology appeals to me for other. I, I like. I love history because of the stories. It's no more than that for me. I just. I'm fascinated by by the storytelling of history. I think history is a narrative. I think history has to be personal because there is no objective truth about why the past unfolded as it did. Hence, that's why I think it is relevant to to, to produce something as personal as mine, because that's 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 the product of me thinking about the the, the moments in history that seem significant to me, and archaeology. Although history had been my thing at school, I barely knew that archaeology existed when I was at school. We, we, we certainly didn't have it as a subject. And it was only when I was thinking about university that I stumbled across the idea of, of archaeology. And, and it, it, it appealed to me, again, for the simple reason that it promised the opportunity to touch things, to, to go to places, not just to read about places and, and things, but to go to places where things had happened, where people had built a house, uh, had a fire and cooked some food where people had buried one of their dead. And, and the fact that you could go to these places and actually actually excavate them and then touch, I, I, that, that, just the thought of that always puts the, the hairs up on, on the back of my neck. And so it's, in answer to your question, my, my love of, of, of archaeology, it explains why history appeals to me in the way that it does. It's, it's just simple excitement. The, the, I find the idea of the past exciting. And, and archaeology, the archaeology that I have been involved with over the years, thrills me because from time to time I've had the opportunity to actually physically touch the past. It's childish, I know. It's just a, sort of a small boy excitement about finding something lost in the grass and picking it up and handling it and wondering who dropped it. That, that's what archaeology does for me. And that... That excitement sort of bleeds across into why, for me, it's, you know, I suppose you could say that I've, I've tried to distill the history down into the hundred moments so that the hundred, each of the moments is a little shiny, a little shiny artefact, something that catches my eye in the same way that a little bit of broken stone tool would, would catch my eye on an excavation and it just focuses my attention. So my, my final question for you, uh, you've told the story of Britain in 100 places and the world in 100 moments. 
What's next? <laughs> well, in, in between, in between, I did a story about uh, the wisdom of the ancients. As an as an archaeologist, and and it, it partly explains why some of the moments are in this book and not others. Uh, I, for me, it, it, when it comes to being an archaeologist, I was never most excited by by finding something or looking for something of, of great intrinsic value, like a gold coin. I was always most affected by um, the slightest trace, you know, a footprint, you know, a, a human footprint left behind, uh, or a, or evidence of a meal cooked seven thousand years ago. You know, the idea of finding the remains of people cooking a, 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 of people cooking a meal thousands of years ago, and the and the and the images, the pictures that that enables you to build in your head of people coming together to do something so instantly recognisable. I mean, we can all identify with the idea of gathering together with some people to share some food. Uh, so, you know, a burnt hazelnut shell, you know, evidence of cooking, uh, flakes of stone left behind by somebody putting an edge back on a tool so that they can so that they can do something with it, sharpen a piece of wood or, or, or cut a bit of, of animal hide, to, you know, to fashion it into a piece of clothing. I think I'm always drawn to, to maybe things that might be overlooked, the sort of items that would never get displayed in a museum case because they're not shiny enough or lovely enough. And so I, I suppose when it, when it comes to looking forward, I, I, might, I might be looking at, at considering some of the things that have been found in the past, the kind of traces that would, would just otherwise be overlooked, but, but maybe if you, if you pay a different kind of attention to them, these, these, these seemingly insignificant things have stories to tell, and that, that appeals to me. That was Neil Oliver. The Story of the World in a Hundred Moments is out now, published by Bantam Press. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. We'll be back tomorrow with an episode on everything you wanted to know about the Treaty of Versailles.